So the Bible reading for today is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, and it can be found in page 1507 of the Church Bibles. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, but to be honoured by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask it. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, pour oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Thank you, Jacob. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, Jesus has so much to teach us, and even though these words are familiar... We pray uh, that you'd help us to examine our lives, our practices before you, so that we'd be obedient to Jesus. Give us all teachable hearts and help me to be clear and true. In Jesus' name, amen. Giving, praying, fasting. Don't be like the hypocrites. Be the real deal. What Jesus says here in Matthew 6 is familiar to most of us. Why does he say it? Okay, uh, because of, not just for our, for our own selves, but because of the possible impact that we will have on others. Uh, Jesus' disciples, he's teaching Jesus, his disciples, Jesus' disciples are powerful. Think of the Christian who's had the most impact on your life. That person's very powerful. I think of an older man named Keith. He wasn't the minister, he wasn't the pastor at the church I became a Christian at. Um, he was just one of the congregation but he radiated a joy, and he was a new Christian. He hadn't been Christian for very long, and um, it was clear that he knew Christ, and for him, that was everything. So despite his arthritis, which bunched his knuckles up into this hideous sort of foot uh, you know, image, despite dragging his club foot along and having, wearing a brace, which he'd worn all of his life, despite the fact that his only son had died from a drug overdose and his only daughter was a heroin addict, Keith 
and his wife Nola radiated joy. And as a teenager growing up in that, well, newly converted in that church, I wanted to bask in it. So every Thursday morning, I'd get on my bike and I'd, before I'd do anything else, before breakfast, I'd ride around to Keith's place and we would spend half an hour together and I just sat with him as a brother in Christ and would listen to him and pray with him because I just wanted to soak up that which he had. Christians, Jesus' disciples, can have enormous power for good. Okay, no doubt you'll be able to think of someone who has powerfully shaped your life. But Christians can have enormous power for evil. Now, usually when we think of the hypocrites, we think of the Pharisees and we imagine them as wearing sort of black Dracula capes with high collars and laughing maniacally and rubbing their hands together or something like that. That send-up anaesthetizes us from seeing that anyone who says they follow Jesus is vulnerable to hypocrisy and therefore has potential power to do great harm to ourselves and to others and to Christ's name. We think of Cardinal Pell. We think of the Royal Commission. We think of the story after stories that have come out of damage done to people's lives by those who have come in Jesus' name. Later in chapter 7, Jesus will say, not everyone who comes in my name saying, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So clearly, not everyone who comes in Jesus' name is genuine. Clearly, there will be fakes. There will be hypocrites. And Jesus knows this. But it's not just the pedophile priest who has this destructive power. It's any of Jesus' disciples who say they follow Jesus, but don't walk the talk. Hypocrisy destroys people. It destroys people's faith. It drags Jesus' name through the mud. And so there's immense power in saying we follow Jesus, both for good or for evil, which means that we here in this building are literally a powerhouse, either for good or for evil. So should we just pull in our heads and not be public as Jesus' disciples? No. Because a true disciple can't hide it. And neither should we. Jesus said in chapter 5, Let your light shine before people so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus knows that we have power for good. He wants us to use it positively with the result that others too will become followers of Jesus and then glorify God our Father. Okay, so how do we ensure that we'll remain the real deal instead of turning into a harmful hypocrite? Well, Jesus takes us right to the heart of the answer up front and he says in verse 1 of our passage today, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So according to Jesus, the heart of the issue is who we're going to look to for our reward. And there's two options. Either we'll look to other people to seek their praise. And at school, we're drilled in how to do this, aren't we? From when we're very small, to look to other people to seek their praise. Jesus says, you do that, you'll end up a harmful hypocrite. Or you will look to your heavenly Father for his commendation, and that is the path of the true disciple. So everyone here is now thinking, well, I'm going to choose this one. <laughs> I'm going to seek my Father's approval. But it's not that easy, is it? Because look at the first two words. Jesus says, be careful. 
The assumption being that a ge- being a genuine disciple and avoiding hypocrisy is not easy. But it's very easy to be a, a hypocrite. And we must therefore be careful to guard ourselves from seeking praise of others. How do you do it? Well, the way we do it is to be careful not to do our acts of righteousness before others to be seen by them, because then we won't be tempted by other people's praise. Now, that's not saying that everything we have to do has to be hidden. Obviously, someone has to lead in church, for example, lead prayers, read the Bible. What he is saying is that in our own personal one-to-one acts of devotion with God, be invisible. Now, if you remember back to chapter 5, you may be scratching your head at this point because didn't we hear back then in verse 16, Jesus say, Let your light shine before men that people may see your good deeds. Now in chapter 6 he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them, right? Be seen, don't be seen. Be visible, be invisible. What on earth's going on? Okay, remember where we've come from. Chapters 5 and 6 are part of Jesus' mission instructions to his disciples. And it starts with the wonder of the gospel that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are poor in spirit, those who know their own sin, those who are bankrupt themselves. He said, that attitude of heart, seeing yourself as poor, but Jesus is rich, who gives it to you by his grace, that will come out in your life. Okay, that will be seen. In fact, it can not not be seen. It will be as obvious to everyone as a city on a hill, Christ's righteousness shining through you and it's meant to be seen you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl you put it on its stand so it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way Jesus says let your light shine before men and that light being Christ's light Christ's righteousness in us which shines out through us in the rest of chapter 5 Jesus tells us that uh, what that light will look like as he then speaks on the topics of murder and adultery and divorce and oaths and loving your enemies all right Chapter 5 is all about how we treat other people on the horizontal dimension of human relationships, one to another. But now in chapter 6, Jesus switches 90 degrees and he goes vertical. He wants to speak about our vertical dimension of our own relationship with God. Chapter 5, how we treat people, okay, that's meant to be seen. All right? Chapter 6, how we treat God, that's meant to be private. Why? It has to do with whose praise we're seeking. Okay, I want you to imagine a picture of a very big tree, an enormous tree, very healthy, strong, vibrant. Okay. If you're a healthy tree, you will have new growth and you will bear lots of fruit. But the only way you're going to be a good tree that's healthy and fruitful is if you have underneath, under the ground, out of sight, invisible to everyone else, a very well-developed root system. Okay, now that's the same as the true disciple. The true disciple can only be seen to be fruitful in terms of what Jesus is talking about in chapter 5 if underneath, out of sight, invisible to the eyes of others, they have cultivated their root system, that is their relationship with their heavenly father privately. This is something cannot be seen by other people. Only then will you be the fruitful tree. Later in chapter 7, Jesus will say, every good tree bears good fruit, right? So a tree with good root system bears good fruit. 
But a bad tree with a withered, shrunken root system will bear bad fruit. By their fruit, you will recognise them underneath, all right? And here in chapter 6, we see that what makes a good tree good is that the true disciple actively cultivates their root system, which cannot be seen, that is their hidden relationship with their heavenly father, and that it's from him that they draw their nourishment and their encouragement, right, to bear fruit. Does everyone understand? Okay. And here we see what makes a bad tree bad is that that man or woman who doesn't cultivate the private relationship with their heavenly father... They will therefore seek encouragement and nourishment elsewhere from the praise of others. In the yard at Trinity City Church, uh, some of you may be able to recall, there was a wonderful tree. Um, the technical name of it was called the Tree of Heaven, it was, which is kind of ironic being in a church. It, it was, um, well, not ironic, appropriate. Um, it had three trunks came out, and it gave, gave great shade for 80 years to people who'd come out into that yard. A few years ago, uh, cracks began to appear at the bottom and we had an arborist come in and assess it and sadly the tree needed to be cut down. It was massively unhealthy and a a possible danger. When it was cut down, it was discovered that the tree itself was hollow and it was hollow um, because it was sick and the roots had been so starved of water and nutrients that they had actually started growing up within the tree itself to try and find nutrients and water to feed it. No wonder it was cracked. It was all sick underground. In the end, the only thing to do was to cut it down. Well, how do you not become like that tree? Answer, you actively spend time cultivating your private relationship with your heavenly Father. No one else can do it for you. It's something that only you can do for yourself. And here's the encouragement Jesus tells us twice. Verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Verse 32. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. The secret that you need to grasp and it will feed you and motivate you to grow this relationship with your Heavenly Father is the knowledge that your Father knows everything about you. He really does. He knows all your needs and because He is the Father who is on your side, He knows everything. He knows all your needs, all your fears, all your worries, all your sins, your secret sins. He knows them all. But he's on your side. And so that gives you immense freedom to be able to come to him and lay before him your biggest fears, your biggest worries, your deepest needs, your greatest desires, your gravest sins. And freedom to express to him your praise. Freedom to serve him with your heart. You know that God is your father who knows you and loves you and your private devotion to God stops being a chore. You'll be jealous to spend that time with your heavenly Father because there's no one else who quite understands you like he does. And that brings brings us to the disciples' secret life. Jesus focuses on three spiritual disciplines, giving, praying, fasting. And in each discipline, Jesus gives a a humorous send-up, a decisive blow, 
and an encouragement. And the send-ups are really funny. They could come out of a Monty Python sketch. Um, when he addresses giving, he paints the picture of someone sort of strutting around with their gold purse, blowing their trumpet to stop everyone in what they're doing to draw attention to the fact that they're giving. Can you imagine? Stop, stop. I'm about to give. Just have a look. It's very funny. Um, with prayer, he sends up the hypocrite with the picture of someone who's making their personal prayers in the synagogue, right? So when everyone else is sitting down, they stand up and they make their prayers out loud so to impress everyone. This is hilarious, actually, in the send-up. Um, better still, standing on a street corner in the most visible spot so as to be seen, but also, when you think about it, the most inconvenient spot because people are turning and they have to kind of step around this person who's, you know, who's standing there you know, in the most inconvenient spot to pray, obviously. You know. It's very, very funny. Um, with fasting, Jesus gets more comic. He describes the sort of person who slinks around with their face sombre and um, you know, their smile just disfigured. Um, disfigured, I just made up a new word. <laughs> You can use that if you want. Um, <laughs> it could go with disgruntled. Um, I always want to meet a gruntled person. I've never met one. I don't know what that looks like. But anyway, I'll get back on topic. All right. Someone whose face is kind of so somber, um, deliberately ter you know, looking tragic, to show everyone how much they're suffering for God. It's very, very funny. Um, but after sending them up, Jesus delivers a decisive blow. Verse 2, to the show-off giver... I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. To the show-off prayer, verse 5, I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Verse 16, to the show-off faster, I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Point, if you're into seeking praise from others because of your acts of devotion to God, ax them from your life. There is no lasting value in them. God is not impressed. At the very best, he is laughing at you. I know of a man who served on a cathedral committee, was raising money for new cathedral spires. And this committee sought donations and other members of the committee suggested that plaques be erected in the church in honour of each person who had contributed. My friend was a godly man, and he knew what Jesus had taught on this. So he said, well, only if you put at the bottom of the plaque, they have received their reward in full. <laughs> to which the committee went, what a great idea. <laughs> they had no idea that the joke was on them. Unbelievable. So the plaques went up. <laughs> Uh, now, my experience in church is that most Christians get the need for discretion when it comes to letting people know how much we give. Most of us see the need for public prayer and we understand the difference between someone leading us in public prayer but also bringing before God our own personal, individual needs. But fasting, you know, the reality is I don't see many Christians fasting Maybe they do, maybe they've taken Jesus' teaching to heart and I just don't know about it because they look so wonderful. Um, but I think probably not. When we think about what fasting is and what it aims to do, it's a physical deprivation for the sake of prayer and serving God. 
Now, it's not exactly the same, but I do wonder whether a contemporary par- parallel to the deliberately morbid faster in Matthew 6 is that pastor or the layperson, the lay leader, who keeps letting slip how much they've been working for the Lord, how many hours they've given serving him in their spare time, that person who loves sending church-related emails late at night, 2am, 3am, and thinks about the people who will receive them and notice the time they come in, and who thrive on the kudos that they get from how hard others see them working. This phenomenon is uh, spoken of in this little book, which is a gem called Zeal Without Burnout. Um, I I highly recommend it. (laughs) Um, But I quote, When I share, please pray with me, it's been a very, very busy week for the past few weeks and I'm putting in long hours and I'm going without sleep. I've worked right through my day off. When this is what's said with my lips, the subtext in my heart may be, I want you to realise that I and my ministry are very, very important and probably more important than you and your ministries. So this author, Christopher Ashe, says such ministry machismo is proud and dangerous. So what do we do? If there are three acts to acts, there are three disciplines to cultivate. Giving. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Praying. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. And then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Fasting. When you fast, put oil on your head. That means um, lotions, so you don't look terrible. Wash your face, so that it won't be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Giving. What's helpful in Jesus' encouragement about giving is that he lifts giving from something we do because we must, because we're told to, because we feel guilty if we don't. He lifts it from being a soulless task and describes it as a discipline to be cultivated as part of our personal devotion to our Heavenly Father. Now, is that how you see your giving? As a private act of love, done willingly, because you want to please your heavenly Father? If not, hear Jesus' encouragement to cultivate it as an act of devotion to your heavenly Father and to seek his pleasure when you do it. Praying. The words of the Lord's Prayer are so familiar to us that we trot them off, but do we really know what they mean? You know, is hallowed be your name, is that an expression of praise or is it a prayer for something? Is may your kingdom come, is that a prayer for Jesus to come back or a prayer for something else? Is may your will be done on earth as in heaven? Well, what is that? I mean, how is God's will done differently in heaven and on earth that means we know what we're praying when we pray that prayer. And they're just the first three lines. Yet they're the ones that Jesus says are first order priorities when we pray. But when you think about it, we actually don't really know what we're praying. So what do we do? Most of us, when we think of prayer, we think, oh, prayer is coming with God, uh, to God with a list of our shopping needs, you know, your shopping list. Well, of course, Jesus does teach us, uh, teach us to pray for our own needs and to do it daily. 
But if we think that's all that prayer is, then we're missing what comes before that in the Lord's Prayer and what comes after. What comes before are the first order priorities that the Lord has for him and, the, and people in the world. And he wants us to pray about those things. And what comes after is all our own spiritual needs. So if you reduce prayer just to your own shopping list, right, of physical things, can you see how much you're missing out? Well, Jesus teaches us to pray. The first three lines of prayers about God's priorities for himself and people in the world. So, hallowed be your name. Now, let me show off for a moment. The Greek tense is aorist passive. It's not evocative or an imperative. What that means is, it is it's a prayer. It's not an expression of praise. It's a prayer. May your name be hallowed. That is... May your name, who you are, your reputation, your honour, your character, may that be hallowed, that means sanctified, that means set apart in people's hearts and minds so that when people hear of you, they go, oh, I want to know him, I want to love him, I'm so excited to get to know him. Now, when you think about it, with the fallout of the Cardinal Pell conviction recently and how much God's name has been dished, in the Australian mindset. That is exactly the prayer that every Christian in Australia needs to be praying right now. May your name be hallowed, because it certainly has not been. That's first order. Second, may your kingdom come. That also is a mission prayer that God's saving and loving rule would become a reality in more and more lives of more and more people. Now, of course, ultimately, this is a prayer that, Jesus, may you come back. May the King of God's kingdom come back. May you take up your rule. May your kingdom come. But now it's a prayer. May, may an increasing number of people come under your rule, your saving and loving rule, by becoming Christians, by submitting to the king of the kingdom, by putting their trust in him. It's a mission prayer as well, do you see? And may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done. Well, we think God's sovereign, isn't he? His will is always done because he decides what happens and it happens, doesn't it? No, no. Well, yes, but that's not what we're talking about because he adds the second bit, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, how is God's will done differently in heaven than on earth? Well, in heaven it is always obeyed completely and willingly, whereas on earth it is not. So this is a prayer that more and more people, having become Christians, would then be obedient to Jesus and willingly obedient in every part of their life. They're all mission prayers, now, if they're all three mission prayers, why not just have one line? Because the answer is there's a progression. First, you're praying that people would revere who God is and set him apart in their hearts. Secondly, that they would then become Christians by entering the kingdom of God. And then thirdly, that they would become obedient Christians. That is, every part of their life obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, obediently and willingly, you see. So there is a progression. And we must ask ourselves, when we pray, do we begin our prayers like that because it really matters to us? Or do we just jump straight to the next bit, praying for our physical needs? Give us today our daily bread. Now, of course, Jesus does want us to pray for these things. He teaches us to do so. And the sense is that we're meant to pray for this daily. Give us today what I need for today. 
And then we ask, do we do that? Because everything we need can be delivered to our doorstep online through, the, through a PayPal, a click of a button, and my credit card details go through. But supply lanes can be stopped, can't they? Things can be interrupted. We are dependent upon daily for all of our needs. And then when we pray, do we stop there or do we go to what Jesus teaches us to cover next, which is the third section, our spiritual needs? And he mentions forgiveness and temptation and deliverance from Satan. Three lines, again, all addressing our spiritual needs. Why doesn't he just include one line? Because they are not the same. Again, there's a progression. Our first need is forgiveness. We're to pray for this daily because we sin daily. Right? Now, if you believe in Jesus, it's not like if you drop dead, but you haven't asked for forgiveness for the sin that you've just committed, then you're going to go to hell because you're justified by faith. But the reality is you're in a relationship with your heavenly Father, a relationship in which you want to walk obediently, where there's open communication lines, and therefore you need to pray for forgiveness daily. Secondly, there's our sanctification. Lord, help me to stand firm in temptation. In fact, lead me not in temptation. Lead me away from it. Lead me out of it. I can't do it myself. That's why I'm asking you to lead me. I need to walk with you here. Third, our final deliverance from Satan when Christ returns. So can you see, if, you're limiting, if we're limiting our prayers just to our shopping list, there's a whole lot we're not praying for. Right? There's God's priorities for what he wants in his relationship with the people in the world. And then there's our own spiritual needs as well. Jesus says, pray like this. That is how you cultivate your private relationship with your heavenly father. That's how you're the real deal. That's how you'll stop being a hypocrite. Okay, finally, fasting. Fasting is something that's not in, really encouraged or modelled. Um, certainly in my own life, by people who have discipled me, and therefore not something I instantaneously think about encouraging other people to do either. But because Jesus teaches about it here, he's forced me to think about it. And when I think about what the goal of fasting is, it seems to be deliberately taking time out, even depriving myself so as to I, I can seek to know what God's will is or I can seek him in prayer. Now, that goal, at least, seems to me to be something very worthwhile cultivating. And so I ask myself, when was the last time I set apart the normal parts of my life, like eating, that I would fervently seek to know what God would have me do and to fervently come before him in prayer? Giving, praying, fasting. And just as there is a progression within each one, there is a progression within each of these three. Jesus is teaching us how to cultivate that root system, that relationship with our Heavenly Father. It begins with giving. When I give to the needy and go beyond what I'd normally do to church or mission partners, I'm going the extra mile. And my main motivation, if I do it quietly, is to please my Heavenly Father. So by cultivating that quiet generosity to the needy, I'm thinking more about pleasing God. But for me, at least, that's going against the grain. I grew up in a very fiscally conservative family with a dad who was a public servant for 42 years. We lived in a fibre house with a Kingswood and a Datsun, and next door had the BMWs and that sort of stuff. 
So money was always tight, and I grew up in a household where you always had to save and you hung on to whatever you had. So it's against the grain for me to learn to be generous, but I've been trying to not let my left hand know what my right hand is doing. That is, just give and not worry about it. Then, prayer. If I'm thinking about pleasing God, I'm keen, therefore, to know what he wants, not just what I want. And the more I pray, the more particularly this prayer, the more what I want becomes in line with what God wants because in the Lord's Prayer, he set out what he wants, but the more I'm praying it and making it my own prayer, my priorities are getting ordered alongside his. Okay. And then fasting. If I regularly have fellowship with my Father in prayer, then seeking his will and fervently bringing my prayers to him, well, that doesn't seem extreme at all. Everyone who says they follow Jesus has power, both for good, the true disciple, or for evil, the hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't seek people's praise. Be the real deal. Seek your father's praise by cultivating that unseen root system of your private devotion to God. That is the secret to being a fruitful disciple Lord Jesus thank you that you have taught us and each of us realize now there are parts of our lives which we need to change and so we ask by your spirit that you'd help us each of us to cultivate that private relationship with you our heavenly father knowing that you who know our needs you who see what is done unseen you will reward us May we live for your praise, not others. In Jesus' name, amen.